And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, where this morning we will have a single verse, just one verse to be read from Hebrews chapter 11, as well as a bulletin insert front and back through the course of the sermon. What is he thinking? Has he not figured out that you just can't read so much? Well, you just wait till I have to share a long quote in just a moment. A lot of words, a lot of words. Last week, a lot of words about Cain and Abel. This morning, a lot of words about Noah. But I'm doing this for a reason and with intention. Let me remind you of that. So we're working through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. We come to chapter 11 and either you're just going to fly through it and you're going to assume everybody knows the stories already and the characters and the big idea, or you're going to say, no, 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 let's slow down. Let's take a look at what's here and let's not assume that everybody in the room knows these stories and these characters, these episodes of faith. Now, unapologetically, that's what I'm doing. Um, if we just assume everybody knows these stories, if somebody did trickle in and we didn't do the justice to the story, then they're just going to feel like, well, these people are beyond where I am. I, I just can't be here, right? So there's a lot of reason why we're doing this. Plus, I just got to believe Maybe these stories need to be heard fresh and new. Maybe you heard them in a way, like the story we're going to consider this morning, um, that was cute and sweet and very childlike images of animals on an archy archy. When actually this is a horrific story of dreaded judgment and of death. See, there's more than one way to tell a story, and we tend to have heard this passage in one way when perhaps it was intended to communicate something very different. So give your attention for now just to verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 11, then in greater detail throughout our sermon. <clears throat> By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. One simple verse about a faithful man. That's all that we're given in Hebrews 11. But there's so much more to him. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing our time together. Lord, as we open your word, it is our great hope, it is our great belief that you have eternal truths for your people to understand and to believe by faith. Would you take these few moments that we have for this time and would you teach us that profound truth? Would you work in us? Would you give us belief, the very faith that the author of Hebrews is calling us to? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 1 of chapter 11, which was a sermon for two weeks ago, the author of Hebrews, in making this appeal for people to persevere in faith, you must persevere in faith, he defines that faith in verse 1 of chapter 11. And essentially he says it's this, 
Faith is being sure. It is being certain of what is not yet seen. Or as I described it, as things that are not yet in hand, you have confidence that they're as good as being in hand. That is his definition of what faith and the faith of of our spiritual ancestors, the ancients, he calls them, that they had a faith like that, that because God said it would be true, they lived as if it were true in that moment. That's what biblical faith looks like. And so this morning we have that one little summary passage from the author of Hebrews. One little passage, one sentence for us on the person of Noah which means he clearly assumed his people understood the story of Noah. And that's the assumption I'm not going to make this morning. He could make it speaking to those people at that time, but but we're not going to make that this morning. So here's what I'm doing, big picture. The story of Noah, the portion that I'm going to tell, is found in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7, Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 9. That's four chapters. So how in the world are we going to do that in the few minutes that we have? Well, I'm going to break all that down into three categories for the purpose of being simple and as brief as possible. So here are your three categories for those who like to to listen through a lens. The first is this, the condition of creation. Since Cain and what we heard last week, that first murder, fratricide, that first child of Adam and Eve, who they hoped was the Messiah, the head crusher of the serpent, but instead was the crusher of the head of his own brother. What has happened with creation? What is the condition of all creation? That's the first important point. The second is the resulting consequence of judgment. That sin has consequences. And the Lord is visibly and really going to demonstrate it. And then thirdly, the appeal of the author of Hebrews that summarizes everything in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 is the necessity of faith. That God's people have to have faith in the promises of God, the purpose of God, Faith in God and in the grace that He alone can provide. So there's your three things we're going to talk about. And it's all going to come from the Scripture. And I do have much that we'll read. But I've taken selections from those chapters to condense it to the bare bones. Okay? There's just no way to read all this. And I don't want to spend five weeks on it. But we're going to try to pull it off together right now. So the first point. The condition of all creation. The Scriptures say at this point is a condition of ruin. It's a condition of spiritual ruin. All of creation is now perverted. It's in a condition of ruin. Listen to Genesis 6. The selections are 5 and 6 and 11 and 12. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth. And His heart was deeply troubled. Then verse 11 and verse 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. 
God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Now you see why I categorize it as ruin. It's corruption. Only evil all the time. Violence. The way of Cain has become the way of the earth. All nature is now disordered. It's in chaos because of sin. At Christmas time, we sing that line in the hymn that thorns have infested the ground. But He has come to make His blessings known as far as that curse has been found. So this is the condition of the earth. This is the Bible's testimony about what Adam and Eve's rebellion, their sin, through their children, their offspring, the condition of the earth. It is a doctrine of spiritual ruin. C.S. Lewis has a marvelous summary of this doctrine in what is a very lengthy quote, so long that I didn't even type it out on a slide, but it is on a handout you can grab if you have not already. But listen to this. Listen to how C.S. Lewis characterizes the ruin of the earth and see if it doesn't just prove itself in the news every night and in your living experience. He says this in Mere Christianity. What Satan, the serpent, put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, that they could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, that they could be their own masters, that they could invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. He goes on. The reason why it can never succeed in making us happy is this. God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on Himself. He Himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good Asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion, or we would say faith. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from Himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. That, he says, is the key to history. Terrific energy has been expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions are devised, but each time something goes wrong, some fatal flaw, 
always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top, and it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, he says, the machine, the human machine, conks. It seems to start up all right, and it runs a few yards, and then it breaks down. They are trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has done to us humans. Do you not see that in the news every night? In our news, in our society, in our world, our part of the world, everywhere, it's a condition of ruin. Ever since Adam and Eve and the teeth broke the skin on that apple. That's what the Bible testifies to the condition of this world and of your heart and of mine. Did you know that? It's a condition of ruin. Is that your view of yourself? Is that your view of the world? That is the Bible's testimony about the condition of all nature, of all creation. All humanity is now divided. It is hostile. It is violent. It is fractured. It is tribal. It's gone the way of Cain. That's what's happened to humanity. Some of you maybe have been caught up in this Murdaugh mystery in the low country. I paid a little bit of attention to it uh, early on. Now I'm fascinated by it. It is the story of Genesis and the ruin of man. Now, I'm not passing judgment. I need to be careful. I'm curious to see how this concludes and if there is a clear and definitive conclusion. But regardless, you see the spiraling nature of sin and the disintegration of sin. It's not just true in that story. It's true across the board. It's everywhere. And it's in us. It's in our own lives. Sin spirals and it disintegrates. That is the condition of the earth as the Scriptures reveal it. All of creation is in a state of ruin. That verse from Genesis 6, 5 and 6, only evil all the time. The problem with our view of self in our culture tends to be we would rewrite that passage to say not only evil all the time, but sometimes evil some of the time. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. That's how we want to rewrite that passage. That's not the Scripture's testimony about the condition of man. The heart is now so bent from God, it is only evil all the time. Now, does that mean it's always as evil as it can be? No. We can have the appearance. We can do things that look good on the external surface. But you take it to its core and what it's looking for, and it's not going to be holy, it's not going to be perfect, and in that way, it's sinful and falls short of the glory of God. What is your doctrine and your view of yourself and your heart? Is it only evil all the time, or do you see yourself as sometimes evil some of the time? The Bible's very clear about that doctrine, and we need to be equally clear. Otherwise, our worship and our theology will be straying from truth. It will be skewed. Second point, judgment. Judgment is certain because of this condition of ruin 
and sin. The Lord says the waters will rise as the wages for sin. To summarize this, I've chosen chapter 6, verse 7, 13, 17, and then chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. All of that should be uh, on your, in your bulletin if you have it. Uh, but give your attention to this as I read those ex- excerpts. So the Lord said, because of the condition of sin, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them... The animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Then verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Verse 17. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. And then chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth And all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. These are the waters of judgment. Because of the ruin of the earth, because of the violence of the earth, because of the way of Cain now dominating the hearts of men, the Lord says, I will wipe it all away. I will bring not a wiping of forgiveness, a wiping of judgment an erasing of creation, and then a new creation after that, he says. And so in this way, the flood is a visible judgment. You know, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, the wages of sin is death. And here is a visible picture of the wages of sin. The Lord is bringing the consequence to bear on His creation, and He's flooding it with judgment. The result of that is that many, almost all, are condemned. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned. And here, many receive judgment for it. But curiously, not all. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 17, we're told, that the Lord says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. That is a horrific scene. It should bring a sense of trembling, a holy fear into people. 
And that's why it is just funny, um, parents speaking to you and children speaking to you for a moment. Um, You know, in trying to teach this story to children, we can cartoonize it and put it in pretty little pictures and make it sweet and cute and put it to lyrics to a song. But we can't lose the horror of what is intended here. That judgment is real. And the holiness of God demands it. So somehow we've got to thread that needle and balance that line of overwhelming, dreadful fear of the holiness of God against sin. And yet His beautiful promise of preserving and saving a people according to His promise. I'll let you parents figure that out and share with me what that perfect balance and threading of the needle is. But let's make sure that we're all reminded of the larger point of the story as it's been given to us. The beautiful saving moment of the story is that not all are condemned. The Lord has purposed, He says, to save a family, to save a few to save what elsewhere is called a remnant, a chosen few. This, of course, is language echoed in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, we're told there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And here is a visible picture in the Old Testament, a type, a shadow of how God's saving work actually works in humanity. So what we have going on here is so much, it's so much to capture, but it's the Lord saves a family and he saves them because of his promise. You remember the promise, the first promise back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is that the Lord would provide a seed from the woman. A seed who would do what? Crush the head of the serpent. That seed of the woman has to be preserved. For the story of the New Testament and what we celebrate at Christmas to become true, The seed of that woman has to be preserved. And what we have in the ark is literally a floating treasure chest that contains the covenant promise of God, the seed of the woman. That because he had made a promise to one day bring forth a seed to save the earth, he now will protect that family and only that family for the good of all the earth that would come after it. It's an amazing story of God proving Himself faithful to His promises. That is what He is determined to do. And now the author of Hebrews gives it to us in that one sentence and says it's all about having faith. Faith in God. Faith that He is a promise keeper. He is the great promise-keeping God. And that is our third point. That faith is the necessary gift of God. That is why the author of Hebrews, that is what he is underscoring. So concerning that, at least three things we'll say. Number one, Noah the man. 
He is the one being highlighted in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, that Noah was a man. And we learn of Noah in chapter 6, verse 9, and then in chapter 7, verse 1, where we're told this, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, there's your key word. You remember what the author of Hebrews is highlighting. By faith, by faith, by faith, Noah did these things. And you go back to the original account, and it says that Noah was a faithful man. In that way, he was righteous. He was in right relationship with the living Lord. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. So Noah the man is a man who is defined as being righteous because he's characterized by faithfulness in the Lord. He is obedient to the Lord's commands. He is believing in the faithful promises of the Lord. Second thing, summarized right there, that Noah is a man characterized by faithful obedience. Genesis chapter 7, verse 5, we're told, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. This is a statement about all the meticulous details about building this thing called an ark. Now, I'm trying to not to get into all those details about the ark because that would be a, a sermon and a history lesson in itself. The summary of it for our purposes is that, the Lord believe, or that Noah believed the Lord and he obeyed him. He did what the Lord commanded him to do. And he did it all by faith. Now, there's a lot of things that we'd like to know from this whole Noah story um, that the text don't, it doesn't tell us. Right? You have a lot of questions, I'm sure. Is this a local flood? Is it a worldwide flood? There are people who come to different conclusions on that. One of the interesting questions in my mind is, how long did it take to build this ark? And there are computations. We don't know exactly, but the estimates that I saw this week suggest that it, it's probably a 50 to 75-year build. Now, I just finished a bathroom project that took a year and I was ready to throw in the towel quickly. Can you imagine for 50 to 75 years with primitive tools, building an ark with the dimension, the sizes, the meticulous particular details without giving up, without quitting? That reminded me this week, uh, in 2012 on the History Channel, there was this marvelous little series on the men who built America. Have you seen that? It is worth seeing if, if you have not, just historically. It's interesting to find out how much you did not learn in school. That was my experience watching it. But it's following particular wealthy men early on in America. And I remember my response to that and watching it as they discussed building the railroad and, and putting roads, cutting through mountains for the purpose of, of railroads and, and future roads, building bridges. And I listened to that, the expense of it, but the number of years that they committed to 
to put in roads and railroads. Honestly, if I were the one sitting around that conference room table deciding, are we going to build a railroad out west or not? I would have concluded, we're not doing it, y'all. It's too hard. It's too long. Let's not do it. And that's why I'm not an engineer. Noah was called and gifted, and by faith he performed a 50 to 75-year supposed building project that just overwhelms me. But the passage says he did it in obedience that comes by faith. And that is why he is hallmarked. He is remembered because he did a hard thing, not an easy thing. He did a hard thing, and he did it by faith. Now, this, a word about this ark, I'm not going to mention the details, but there is this telling in the story that is, is remarkable. Over the course of time, it says that the animals were gathered two by two, right? And we know this from our children's uh, versions retelling the story, that male and female, one of each, two of each animal, somehow are are gathered for the ark. And and just for us to chew on and, and ruminate in the week ahead, I want you to think about that. What does that tell us about structure in the earth, in creation, about families, about the propagation to fill the earth? And what does it tell us about God's power to effectually call things into being. Those are the two things I thought about this week. That he has this vision to refill the earth, and he does it by families, by twos, male and female. And God has always worked through families, always. And he shows it here. All of creation is structured by families. And he has this thing that in our world of theology we call effectual calling. He could call these animals into the ark. This wasn't Noah figuring out how to do it. This was supernatural. This was the Lord's doing. And he still does it. He doesn't do it just with animals, he does it with people. He effectually calls people to himself. And that's our great hope in ministry, by the way. He is calling people, he's doing what God alone can do. So you consider that with your children this week the structure of family and God's effectual call to see to completion what he has purposed to do. And then thirdly, concerning Noah, we have what I'm going to call Noah as a fool for God. Now, it's really not mentioned, but it clearly is worth considering. What is said of this man who for 50 to 75 years is building a boat? What do the neighbors think? those who would be shut outside of the boat. What do they think of this man? I mean, surely he's seen as a bit erratic, a bit crazy, a bit absurd, a bit extreme. But he just keeps building. He does what God has called him to do. The, the skies are dry, and he continues to build. And he builds by faith. In this way, he likely was mocked, and ridiculed. He was seen as absurd and foolish, but he was a fool by faith 
for God. The conclusion to the story really is this. Noah and his family were fools who were shut in the ark. The ark was filled with fools for God. Fools by faith. But with their being shut in as fools in the ark, an entire world was shut out as fools who would not enter and could not enter the ark. So you have two kind of fools at play in the passage. Those who are fools for God and those who the Lord would say were fools of the world. Fools of wickedness and folly who would have nothing to do with the Lord, obedience to Him and His promises. So two kinds of fools play out. In our assurance of pardon this morning, we heard from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Hear it through the light of that language of folly, where it says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You can almost hear Noah speaking those kinds of words. We're foolish to shut ourselves in the ark. We get it. We know what you mean. But we're fools for the promises of God. We believe Him. We believe His promises. We're going to trust Him. We're going to stay near Him. We're going to obey Him. It's foolishness to you all that we believe this. But we do. And that is the sum of the church and of the Christian life. Is it not? That we're seen as fools. Naive, knuckle-dragging people on the earth for believing things like resurrection from the dead? Have you ever seen a body rise from the dead? We believe God's Word. We believe His promises. We believe that He will prove Himself to be true and every man a liar. Now the story progresses, and this is where I have to do much in a very short period of time. But the whole of the story, all of these verses of chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, is a story of God's faithfulness. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He will see His promises through. And the author of Hebrews wants you to know that. That your faith is in God as a promise-maker and as a promise-keeper. And that is the sum and the theme of all of Scripture. I'm going to read this. This is chapter, the selections from chapter 8 and chapter 9. Hear it all come together into this roaring fire of God's covenant faithfulness. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth, families, and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, 
And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Chapter 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And there is the summary of God our covenant maker, God our covenant keeper. When He has said it, He will see it through. And that is our great promise as a church. That all of His promises, they hold true in Jesus. They become true and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus whether the world calls it foolishness and folly or not. And they will. And they always have. There is nothing new to your Christian experience or to mine. It's how God's people have always been perceived. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 10 to 13 excerpts from there. This is what he says is true of himself, the Apostle Paul, and of Christians then. Listen to this. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are dishonored. We go hungry and are thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. We are cursed. We are persecuted. We are slandered. We have become the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. What a robust call for evangelism, no? Right? Is that how you would articulate the Christian life? It's how the Apostle Paul articulated it as an apostle. And we look at the life of Noah. We look at the life of the ancients. We can look in our world. We can look at the church. And it rings true. Noah was a fool for God because he believed in the promises of God. And so are you foolish in that kind of way? Do you believe the promises of God by faith even when life hurts, even when life is confusing, even when life feels very much out of your control? That's what the people of old did. They believed, even that they did not yet see or have in hand, they believed the promises of God were as good as seeing and having in hand the fulfillment of those promises. That's the faith that the author of Hebrews invites us to and calls us to. Those of you my age or around my age remember the... the musician and songwriter and, and theologian, Michael Card, and his song, God's Own Fool, that says this, and I'll close with this. So we follow God's own fool, the Lord Jesus, but only the foolish can tell 
We believe the unbelievable. Would you come and be a fool as well? The call to discipleship from the world's perspective is a call to foolishness. Because the cross has always been seen as foolish to the world. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who by faith persevere and believe. Let's pray that that would be true. Lord, we believe. Would you help us in our unbelief? Would you help us when we feel overwhelmed by the world and it's calling us foolish and are wanting to fit in with them, are wanting to be praised by them? And yet your word this morning reminds us we're to give no attention to any such thing. Lord, would you work a deep faith, a deep abiding faith, a trust, a belief in your promises that would carry us through to the very end. We ask this, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.